everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you for tuning in. Uh, it has been a minute since I recorded our last episode. We have been in the middle of a live seven-part series on the seven churches of Revelation, so that takes quite a bit of time to prepare and put together and, um, and other things going on, but it's good to be back. And today, we are tackling a topic that is so important to me. Actually, it's super important for the body of Christ. And it's so important that there's a lot to it. So I've divided it up into two parts. But it's all about our loss of a biblical worldview. And I really struggled with what to title it because there was different things going on in my head. But I think that's the one that really I settled on this loss of a biblical worldview that is facing the Christian church today, mainly the Christian church in the West. And so what I'm going to try to do today is attempt to tackle this topic of Christianity that may help us figure out why we have this loss of a biblical worldview. And it's a topic that uh, I'm going to talk about today that you probably haven't given much thought to. And what the topic is, is how the church became disconnected from its Hebrew roots and embraced a thinking that ultimately is rooted in ancient Greek philosophy and the effects that this has had mainly in the Western church, effects that we are seeing the fruit of right now. Now, with the exception of a Messianic congregation I attended and a few other churches I have visited and many I have listened to online, almost every church I attend or have attended over the years, I've noticed something really interesting. They make no mention or hardly a mention or make no connection whatsoever of our identity in Christ being tied to Israel in any way. There's very little teachings even directed about Jesus in the Old Testament, the shadows of Jesus, his presence that is found all throughout the Old Testament, hardly a mention. There's scarcely a sermon on covenant or covenants because you have the Davidic covenant, you have the Abrahamic covenant, you know. There's hardly a mention teaching people about the tabernacle, which of course has all the shadows of Jesus in it. There is hardly a mention of Hebraic history or even the prophetic writings. And, you know, I get it. I do. I get it. I know we are a new creation people in Christ Jesus, right? And so the focus is on that. I totally get it. I'm not discounting that. Everything is about our relationship with Christ. But that shouldn't negate our desire to want to learn and understand the fuller picture, right? At least that's how I'm wired. I, I like to get deep. I like to get into the nitty gritty. I want to know the truth behind things. And if there are shadows of Jesus throughout the Bible, I want to find them, right? Because what I find more times than not, when I engage in conversation with people about faith in general, it's amazing to me that there is so little understanding of the roots of our faith our ties to Israel even, and again, how Jesus is evident throughout the whole Bible and especially the Old Testament. 
Now, as I'm recording this, Easter is approaching, as is Passover. Both of them are falling on the same week this year. And each year around this time, I try, if I can, I try to teach a workshop on the seven feasts of the Lord. We have one coming up. Last year, we did it at our retreat. And um, so I try to teach a workshop on the seven feasts of the Lord. Now, the feasts of the Lord, if you don't know, they're described in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. And then they're found in other stories throughout your Bible. Um, And what they are is they are feasts. They are holy convocations, holy appointments on God's calendar that he has set apart to himself. And at first glance, you might scratch your head wondering, what is the point of learning about these things? But in further study, you begin to see a shadow of something significant, Jesus. And that's what we bring to light in these workshops. These seven holy convocation, these feasts of the Lord are actually a picture of Christ. And so what we do is we set up this display with visual visual aids and such, and we proceed to go through a timeline in the Bible that tells God's story of redemption, which is beautifully told through these feasts and later, of course, revealed in Jesus. And so there are four feasts in the spring. You've got Passover, you've got unleavened bread, you have first fruits, and then you have Pentecost, which which is uh, Shavuot in Hebrew. And then in the fall, you have three. You have the Feast of Trumpets, which is Yom Teruah. Yom means day, so the day of blowing, day of Teruah. Then you have the Day of Atonement, which is Yom Kippur. And then you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which is Sukkot. And I'm getting to a point, so hang with me here. But... When we teach on them, people find it so fascinating and helpful because what it does is it ties stories together in the Bible and then brings a deeper understanding to Easter or Passover. Now, do we need to celebrate the Feast of the Lord as Christians? No, not at all. But I find that when we do or at least acknowledge them or study them, we're blessed I'm blessed at least. For example, if you partake in a Seder around Easter week, it connects you to God's story in a historical and beautiful way as the shadows of Jesus are revealed in the Jewish custom. It's just another way to see Jesus's shadow in the past. When you study the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, and then you start to line that up with what happened with Jesus's actual death, Both events are completely in sync to the timing of the events. It's astounding. When you study the crossing of the Red Sea with the first fruit, one of the feasts of the Lord, the feast of the first fruit, and then you line that up with the Resurrection Sunday, that too is astounding. Because on Resurrection Sunday, then through the feast of first fruit, you recognize Jesus as our high priest. And it's profound. And so most who attend the workshops, they tend to ask why this is not taught in our churches. In fact, they begin to question why so little about Israel in general or the Old Testament is taught in our churches. That's a good question, especially right now, as so much prophecy has come true for Israel in modern times and continues to unfold before our very eyes 
and yet so many are missing it. And I just want to go back to 2 Timothy 3.16. You all probably know this verse, but it's where it says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So to me, when it says all scripture, it means all, old and new. All of it is for our instruction in righteousness. And so with all that said, why do I bring that up? What happened? When did this disconnect come in? If there's so much richness in our Bibles like this, how are we so disconnected from it? Well, it came in during the early centuries of Christianity, when the ancient Greco-Roman culture had been dominating the West for centuries, mainly the Greek culture at first. And that influence had a lasting effect, ultimately seeping into the early church, even to how we study the scriptures today. But before we get to all of that, let me try to give you a picture as to how powerful this influence of Greek culture was in society, and how it uh, took hold in our society here in the West. Let me take uh, architecture, for example. Okay, The Greeks, no doubt about it, they have had a profound impact on architectural development in the West. Have you ever asked yourself, if you live in America, why do so many public buildings look like Greek temples? And then... Why do so many of our public buildings, and I'm talking like the courthouses, the town halls, libraries, museums, banks, right? Why do they not only look like temples, but why do they celebrate Greek deities? People emphasize all the time the separation of church and state, right? And yet we've erected statues and murals of Greek gods, which is still a religious belief system last I checked, right? I mean, a pagan one. Today, it's neo-paganism, and it's, it's definitely on the rise. Well, the argument has been that they're perceived not as religious icons, but more as secular art that reflected the values of the people, such as wisdom and agriculture and liberty. Uh, okay, gods and goddesses to reflect good things? History has shown that empires demanded worship to these same deities, most times at the cost of your life. The worship of these deities included vile and immoral rituals where priests worked themselves into frenzied states of consciousness where orgies then would ensue, not to mention the blood sacrifice rituals that would take place, most times at the expense of your own children or even yourself in the hopes that these gods would bestow their blessings. These deities? And we're worried about the Ten Commandments being in a courthouse? Start taking note. Observe how much biblical influence you find in these public buildings in comparison to the Greeks and their pantheon. It's shocking. There's a subtle, different kind of worship taking place in our public institutions that has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. 
here in Denver, okay? We're in the foothills. But in Denver, I have spent a lot of time at our Capitol over the years, inside, outside, for different reasons. Take a walk around if you live local. Look at the murals. Look at the sculptures. Look at the stained glass windows. So much is influenced by pagan cultures. The Civic Center Park across from the Capitol is built with the Greek theater and colonnade with the signature tall fluted columns. The park itself is a natural historic landmark because of these buildings, all Greek inspired. So architecture is very, we have had, a tr- there's been a tremendous Greek influence of architecture. Well, how about another city? How about the Missouri State Capitol building? My son went to college in Missouri. That's another one. Actually, almost every Capitol building in our country. But this one in Missouri, for example, has the Roman statue of Ceres on the top, which is the Greek god Demeter, the agricultural mother goddess. Is that necessary? In the Bible, the people depended on God for rain and for crops and prayed to him for such things. Does this mean we're depending on a deity for that? How about this one? The fresco, the Apotheosis of Washington from 1865. It's above the rotunda of the United States Capitol building. George Washington is literally surrounded by Roman gods and goddesses while he awaits the process of becoming a god himself. They used six Roman deities to portray key, quote, principles, which helped shape America. They used Neptune, the god of the sea. They used Minerva, the goddess of wisdom. They used Mercury, the god of commerce. They used Vulcan, the god of the forge. They used Ceres, the goddess of agriculture, and Libertas, the goddess of liberty. It's said that the mural is giving America the same significance as Roman deities had on the Roman Empire. Why? For what purpose? I mean, we talk about being founded as a country on Judeo-Christian principles, right? Meaning Christianity and Judaism together. In other words, a true biblical foundation. If that's the case, and this mural was done in 1865, where is Almighty God in this? Where is Jesus in this? Am I the only one asking these questions? I know I'm not. How about the Library of Congress? That's another one, replete with paintings and imagery that directly reference ancient Greece and depict figures from ancient Greek mythology. In fact, a highlight of the building is its murals depicting the muses. The muses now, they were daughters of Zeus, who was king of the gods, and uh, Nemenesi, the goddess of memory. There were nine muses all together, and they were believed to embody the arts and literature. The library's mural is of Melponomy, the muse of singing, dancing, and tragedy. And while, according to mythology, they were beautiful to behold and wonderfully gifted, their talents were not to be challenged. Myths regarding challenges to the muses inevitably end in the challenger losing the challenge and suffering a terrible punishment. And this is what we have in the Library of Congress. 
The U.S. Capitol building itself stands tall on Capitol Hill at the eastern end of the National Mall with its columns and main gable. It's the building, it's built in the characteristic ancient Greek style. And on the block immediately east is what? The Supreme Court building, a masterpiece itself inspired by classical Greek style. Or what about this one? The Lincoln Memorial. It is said about it that it could actually be called a variation of the Parthenon in Athens. In fact, it's even called a temple. It's marked by the touching words, in this temple, as in the hearts of the people for whom he saved the union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. And that is what precisely what many of these buildings are. They're temples. Washington, D.C. is essentially filled with Greek temples. Our state capitals are essentially filled with Greek temples. And this is not just in America. This is in London and other places. you got the London Exchange that has its Greek influence. St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And what about the fire of London in 1666 that destroyed hundreds of churches? Well, they were rebuilt on the basis of Greek architecture. So this influence is all around us. And if you've ever lived or spent time in the southern part of the U.S., I have, you'll find many homes built with Greek architectural influence, big columns out front and inside, and their design mimics a Greek temple. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I just want you to see the influence of the Greek style in the architecture we see around us today. In D.C. alone, it reflects the influence of Egypt, classical Greece and Rome, medieval Europe, and others. And that same influence came into the church. Now I'm just talking architecture here. Churches were built and took on classical Greek and Roman architecture as its main influence. And later, have you noticed how they have demons on part of church buildings and cathedrals. That's something that has always confused me. Anybody else out there? When you have these beautiful churches and then you have these horrid looking demons on them. Study the architecture. Study the artwork. It's everywhere. Think about Notre Dame in Paris, for example. Those grotesque gargoyles that line the balcony connecting the two bell towers. I mean, for what purpose? I know the tour guides tell you it's a reflection of Medieval belief that the church was a battleground between the forces of good and evil. I mean, come on. Either way, is that something you think God would approve of? Jesus teaches kingdom, not building. The church was never meant to be a building, especially a building of grandeur. You know what it was? It was originally a gathering of 30 to 40 people in a home usually the home of one of the more wealthy members of that group. And the group consisted of three types of people. You had Jewish believers in Jesus. You had those who were called, quote, God-fearers. And those were people who were drawn to the synagogue and to the God of Israel. And then you had people who had grown up as pagans who were now coming to the church to learn about Jesus. And the whole point of the gathering was to disciple believers, pray, and serve each other and go out and serve your community. Well, what about the Greek influence? Let's move on to something else. What about the Greek influence in politics? Did you know there is not a trace of democracy in your Bible? Every country in the Bible was an absolute monarchy. 
the kings of Israel, the king of Babylon, the king of Assyria, right? And Jesus's kingdom will be the same way. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know what Lord means? Master. He is our master, our Lord. There were no political parties, no elections, no votes, no debate. The king is law. But we have embraced democracy in the West as well. Not only did the Greeks start democracy, but they also started an idea called devolution, the opportunity for people to govern themselves. Democracy is rule by the people where they can elect who they want to serve them. The word comes from the ancient Greek words demos, the people, and kratos, to rule. Democracy may be perceived to be safer than a dictatorship, right? But it's fraught with its own problems. Because what happens? We become a self-centered culture. My rights. My decision. My house. My vote. My money. My body. My choice, right? This system of governing is not biblical. Now, I'm not trying to poo-poo Greek people. Please hear me if you're Greek and listening to this. What I'm trying to get at is the ancient Greek influence that permeated Western civilization. Democracy, this whole system of governing is not in your Bible. It's Greek thinking. Never forget, in the midst of political upheaval in the world, As a follower of Christ, you belong to a different place. You belong to a kingdom with a king and a Lord. You and I have someone we are held accountable to every day. And our king has his own constitution, so to speak, his own rules, his word, which is the whole Bible. So although we live in a place where we have a voice in politics, We have a higher authority we are accountable to. So be careful not to be deceived by your own environment. According to the Bible, we forfeited our, quote, rights the moment we chose to follow Christ. You, me, we are not our own anymore. You have been purchased with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as have I. We were bought by Christ, snatched purchased out of the enemy domain and transferred into the kingdom of the son of his love. You and me, we were transferred into a kingdom, not a democracy. Every decision we make should be based off of kingdom thinking. Your body, my body, it's now offered as a sacrifice to the Lord every day on his altar of service. Your money, Your house, guess what? It's not yours. You're merely a steward. And that also means we don't get to tell the king what we think is culturally appropriate. We simply have faith in his word and obey it. Let's move on to another one. What about the Greek influence of sport and the body? Sport came from the Greeks. There's no mention of this in your Bible either. Sorry to disappoint you. I know there are a lot of sport lovers out there, my family included. 
except for the Bible verse, of course, where Paul says, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things. That's in 1 Timothy. Or when he talks about running your race. I think that's about the only time you hear about sport in the Bible. Sport came from the Greeks. It's about the cultivation of the body because the Greeks, they were fixated with the human body. And to them, the perfect body in ancient Greece was an athletic body. They believed their gods took human form. And in order to worship their gods properly, they filled their temples with life-size or even larger than that, lifelike images of them. Greeks loved sport. They had their chariot races. They had horse races. Where do you think horse races came from? They had their running races. Where do you think all of our, where do you think our whole setup of sport came from? They had wrestling. They had the pentathlon. They had boxing and they had the uh, pancration, which was an athletic contest that combined boxing, wrestling, and kicking, right? Does that sound familiar today? They simply loved sport and competitions, which most times were performed in the nude. They had the Olympics. We still have the Olympics today. They had the Pythian Games for Apollo at Delphi. They had the Isthmian Games for Poseidon and the uh, Nemean Games, which honored Zeus. The Greeks valued physical and athletic prowess, and that toned male body was sought after as aesthetically pleasing to them. And that influence has completely permeated our culture. Many people treat sport as a religion. I hate to say it, but it's true. There is feverish, feverish worship in a way for football, for basketball, for soccer, for the Olympics, anything. There is a devotion and a loyalty sometimes to sport in the West that goes way deeper than the worship of God for many people, even treating athletes like gods or goddesses. Even the company Nike or Nike, however you want to pronounce it, named after the Greek goddess for Nike which is victory. That whole company is Greek. It's named after a Greek goddess. I mean, it's all around us. And the human body, it's still being worshipped today, probably even more than ever. Modesty seems to have just left the culture altogether, or is that just me? I mean, you look around, There is we leave little to the imagination anymore, especially with our clothing, especially women. You, you know, anyway, I won't go there. But, but displaying our clothing, our body art, you know, whether it's piercing or art on the body, people like to show it off. There's an obsession with fitness and beauty and beauty treatments to help us appear perfect. And in some cases, too perfect. Almost like a statue. What about the Greek influence with entertainment? So we've been teaching on the seven churches of Revelation, like I said, right? Um, But I've also been immersed in my own study of ancient biblical Turkey from east to west, and it's fascinating. You know, Hellenization, it had such a tremendous influence on every culture it conquered. And a key part of Hellenization was leisure. That's why they had incredible libraries, some of the top libraries in the world. Those were found in Ephesus, Pergamon, and Alexandria. It was a place, whenever they conquered an area, it was littered with temples 
Uh, social life was in the agora, the markets. Um, like I said, it was obsessed with sport and obsessed with relaxation. Their bathhouses were incredible. They were a people who lived for leisure. And actually, they introduced leisure to most of the Western world, not work. Work was a necessary means to enjoy your leisurely life. But the true meaning of life to the Greeks was how you entertained yourself. If possible, you employed a slave so you could enjoy your leisure. That's why two-thirds of the people in Greece were slaves to do the work. But not only that, they worshipped the mind, the intellect. They lived for debate and philosophical arguments. Do you remember when Paul was addressing the philosophers in Athens? They loved to discuss philosophy. And this worship of the mind and intellect spread into Western culture. We, too, hold in high regard the intellectuals. In fact, much of our Christian faith, I believe, has been over-intellectualized rather than led by the Spirit of God. As a Christian, as many Christians, many of us are stuck in our need to understand everything, to prove the Bible true, rather than walk by faith and not by sight. We seem to forget that it was uneducated men that turned the ancient world upside down by simple faith and obedience. As it says in Timothy, uh, I think it's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, always learning but never coming to the truth. And that's one of the features of the perilous times of the last days, by the way, if you read that whole paragraph. Always learning, never coming to the truth because we worship our minds. Don't let your intellectualism become an idol. What does this say to you? Have we been influenced by this mindset of leisure? I, you know, I thought about that 80s song. Um, I forget who sings it, but, you know, everybody's working for the weekend, right? You know, we are a people who live for the weekend. We want our leisure. We too, like ancient Greece, we have our theaters, we have our museums, we have our libraries. Maybe that's why they're all filled with these images of Greco and Roman gods, because it came from there. We have our spas, our spa days, like our bathhouses, like their bathhouses. We have our workout facilities for our bodies. And granted, we all do want to be healthy. And I'm not criticizing. I'm just trying to show you where it's coming from. Coffee shops. We we plan our vacations and our retreats and our adventures, right? You know, we live in Colorado, one of the fittest states in the U.S. Talk about leisure. It's a playground out here. Mountain biking, skiing, hiking, fishing, camping, hunting, stargazing, you name it. It's year-round. That's why weekend worship at a church looks very different in the West than where I lived in the South. Because nature calls. People take their weekend to be out in nature. And so that's why sometimes you hear the common phrase, nature is my church. You know, and also in the Bible it says, you know, well it doesn't say this, but retirement is not even mentioned in the Bible. Moses, Caleb, Daniel... Others were in their 80s when they were doing some of their greatest exploits for God. And that's the whole point of this two-part podcast. We're going to talk a lot more about the church in the next episode, but 
In the church today in the West, we've lost something about our identity. An identity that ties us back to the roots of our faith and actually helps us understand our faith in Jesus Christ better. Yes, I know he's our identity, but he's from a family tree that takes us all the way back to the beginning, and we are grafted in to that tree now. And this connection, this family tree, this identity, it it is so important for us to learn because in it, you learn about the history of our faith. We're tied back even to the blessings of Abraham which Galatians 3.14 says, it puts it very clearly that those same blessings promised to Abraham is the blessings we receive by faith through Christ. Righteousness, the Holy Spirit, but also the land of Israel, a family of God more than the stars in the sky. And sometimes because we don't take the time to really go back to our Hebraic roots, we miss this. The root of Christianity is in quite a different world than Greece. Our roots are in the Hebrew world, in the Jewish world, whether some of you like that or not. And that world was almost the opposite in every respect to everything I just described to ancient Greece. It was different in politics. It was different in architecture. It was different in how it perceived leisure. It was different in entertainment. And the more you read and study the Old Testament, the more you understand this. For example, the Hebrews did not live for leisure. They worked a six-day week, and the seventh was a day of rest, the Sabbath. And not just a day of rest to have your own life of leisure, It was a holy day, a day for God, a day for family. They lived for work and they lived for worship. They did not live for sport. They worked for God and lived for God. And that's a thought that just might wreck some of our thinking out there. Our whole Bible is Hebrew from beginning to end. And this this is why the Bible has a very high view of work. This is why even Jesus brings up the parable of the talents. Different, Different things have been given to different people. And the master has gone away. And one day he's going to come back and he's going to want to see what the return on his investment is. What have you done with what I gave you? What did you do with the gifts or the talents or the money or the house or the time that I gave you? Did it produce some kind of a harvest? How did you work while I was gone? Or 1 Corinthians 3, the type of work we're doing. Are you doing the kind of work like that produces hay, wood, and straw, things that grow above the earth, the type of work that you want people to see you doing? Or is it producing gold, silver, and precious stones? things that are lasting, things that are eternal. Because all of our work that we do for the kingdom is going to get tested by fire. One of my favorite verses, and and a lot of people, whenever I say it, they're like, where is that? It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. It says, in the morning, plant your seed and do not withhold your hand. 
for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or if both will be good. Do the work of the Lord, even if sometimes you don't know why you're doing it. Keep planting the seeds. Keep watering the seeds. God will provide an increase at some point. You don't know, though, if what you're doing is going to yield something or not, but he's telling you, do it Do it either way. You don't know what it's going to yield. Or how about Proverbs 10.5? He who gathers in summer is a wise son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. I've been saying this now for months. I look out into the world right now, friends. The fields are white for the harvest right now. Are you sleeping during this harvest or are you working the harvest? Are you living your own life of leisure or are you working the harvest? This is the difference between a Greek and Hebraic mindset. The Bible places an emphasis on work especially manual labor, whereas the Greeks' manual labor was for the slave. And the the Bible says that if we're not working, if you're able-bodied, I'm not talking about some of you who are not available to work, I'm not mentioning that, but if you're able-bodied and choosing not to work, you know what he calls that? Slothfulness, wickedness. He calls people lazy servants who are fully capable of working on his behalf in this harvest time and choose not to. Why? Because it's all his to begin with. So to mistreat or to not cultivate or to neglect or to spend foolishly what is his is wicked. Now, Jesus, of course, is our eternal Sabbath rest. I'm not telling you to, she telling me to take the seventh day as a Sabbath. You can do that if you want. It's kind of like the feast. You don't have to, but you're blessed if you do. I mean, a rest is always good for everybody. But Jesus is our eternal Sabbath rest. And we share in the mindset of those who came before us. Because everything they did in word or deed was unto the Lord. Now, I'm not telling you not to go to a football game or, or I'm, I'm not telling you to take your kid out of lacrosse. But let's make sure that whatever we're doing when it comes to leisure, when it comes to worship, we're doing it with proper balance. When it comes to sport, it's just that. It's sport. It's not God. And the, the players are not God's either. And with sports now taking over Sundays, Sunday worship, parents, we have a lot to pray about and consider, don't we? Take an evaluation. How much time does sport or your leisurely activity take? Now add up how much time you're giving to God. Which one is getting more attention? Which one is getting more worship? The point is, put things in their proper order. Look at Jesus. He got up early in the night watches and prayed. Then he went out all day and did the work of his father. That's what it says in the Bible. Everything he did, everything his father told him to do, he said everything his father told him to say. And yes, he was with his disciples, but he was working. He was with people. He paid attention to their pain. He reached out in their unbelief. How much more can we be doing in a day, in a week, to serve others rather than ourselves? 
Maybe we can volunteer to help the poor, not just at the holidays. Maybe we can make time to have a conversation with someone who has no faith or is lonely. Maybe you can make a bunch of meals if you like to cook and stick them in your freezer and have them at the ready when someone needs help or faces a crisis. It's different thinking. It's Hebraic thinking, not Greek thinking. You know, although the New Testament is written in the Greek language, every writer, with the exception of one, Dr. Luke, was Hebrew. And although the language is Greek, the thinking is Hebraic. It's a life lived for God. Which is why perhaps today so many people are struggling trying to live from a biblical worldview, with biblical morals, with boundaries to their life. Many Christians want the salvation that Christ offers. They want to be cleansed by his blood, but they want to continue living their Greek Hellenized lifestyles. Let me close out the first part of this message with this. The latest George Barna study came out. He is a Christian researcher for the last few decades that surveys and studies different topics related to faith in America. And he works with the Cultural Research Center out of Arizona Christian University. Well, his latest study just came out in late February, building upon the results of a study that was done in 2020. In 2020, they conducted the American Worldview Inventory Study, and in that study, they discovered that only 6% of adult Americans hold to a biblical worldview, a worldview that believes the entirety of the Holy Scriptures and tries to live by them, which means the remaining 94%, even if calling themselves Christian, are embracing a mixture of beliefs. And this mixing is known as syncretism, the merging of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought to form your beliefs, to form your worldview. This is nothing new. Paul was addressing this, for example, in the letter to the Colossians, as Gnosticism and other beliefs were confusing new converts, taking away the simplicity that is in Christ. But it's still here. Syncretism which is why we have such confusion in the church today on social moral issues and why that divide is growing between believers. It's also why there is a falling away taking place, a falling away from biblical truth to embrace more of a world citizen viewpoint. So besides the Bible, what other beliefs are these people adopting, this 94%, so to speak? Well, the seven most common are biblical theism, Marxism, secular humanism, nihilism, which is the rejection of all religious and moral principles, dualism, which is a big one. We'll learn more about that in part two, where that's two opposing and contrasted aspects. Moralistic therapeutic deism is another one. This is where uh, being a good person gets you to heaven feel-good Christianity, and the last, New Age, which also uh, embodies Eastern mysticism, and that's in the church today too. Now, a person doesn't need to believe all of those at the same time, but even mixing one with Christianity is dangerous. That's how the salt loses its flavor, Matthew chapter 5. 
When Christian beliefs, which are narrow, are mixed with other beliefs, which are broad, trouble is around the corner. And that's where we're at. As a country, we have become a culture filled to the brim with mixture. And our churches are filled to the brim with mixture. And now we look around and wonder what went wrong. Well, in Barna's latest research from the end of February, those statistics that I just gave you have even gone in the wrong direction more. Now only 4%, just in the last three years, 4% of adult Americans are holding to a biblical worldview. 1% of our youth aged 18 to 29 hold to a biblical worldview. 95% of them are embracing world citizenship. And that should cause all of us to sit up and take notice. The world is ripe. The West is ripe for a one world religion and ruler. The ancient Greek influence in the church should be alien to our faith. Western civilization has definitely benefited from it in some ways, but it's not the root of our faith. In Hebraic thought, our daily life, how we live it out, is our sacred vocation to the Lord, regardless of where you are or what you are doing at the time when you do it. Whether you're on an airplane, in a hospital, or walking your dog. You don't have to be a missionary, a pastor, or a prophet to do the work of the Lord. You just need to be willing. Most people that God called to do his work were already qualified because of some kind of trade they were in. Fisherman, shepherd, carpenter, tax collector is probably the exemption, the exception. In part two, now that we've kind of set the stage of the Greek influence throughout culture, we are now going to take the look at this influence within the church and how the church was especially influenced by Greek philosophy. And it changed how we think. Before we knew it, we embraced a Greek mindset, mindset over the roots of our Hebraic one. And it changed everything. Until then, God bless you today. Mm-hmm.